thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. In episode 151 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Glenn Livingston to discuss why overeating, stress eating and binge eating are so prevalent in our culture. You will learn about food rules, why character trumps willpower and what you can do to develop a positive relationship with food once and for all. A topic that's very close to my heart and one I'm looking to exploring further with Glenn today. Let's welcome him to the show. I am delighted to be here, Steph. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. So thank you. Excellent. You're very welcome. So firstly, because it is your first time on the show, just give us a little bit of a, I guess, an elevator pitch and some context of what you've been doing and what you're up to these days. Well, uh, these days I help overeaters and binge eaters to stop and think like permanently thin people using a really odd method that involves separating yourself from your inner destructive food thoughts. Um, I'm, I'm a psychologist by training. I was brought up in a family of 17 psychologists and psychotherapists. We often joke that, um, if you something breaks in the house, we can all ask it how it feels, but we don't really know how to fix it. So that's that's my that's, that's my life. Um, I I was also a binge eater myself. So I'm I'm not just a psychologist and I'm an industrial consultant, but I I was a binge eater myself. I I'm I'm six four. I'm reasonably muscular, and when I was a kid, I discovered that I had a superpower, which was that if I worked out for about three hours a day, I could eat anything I wanted to. You know, like two pizzas or box of donuts or multiple chocolate bars and lattes and really whatever, whatever I wanted to. And I thought it was great. I didn't think it was a problem. But um, when I got a little older and I was married and I had patients and I just didn't have the time to spend three hours a day working out because I was commuting and working with people, I, um, I couldn't stop. And I found myself always thinking about food and, and just continuing to overeat. And I it was about 60 pounds heavier than I am now. And I was getting yelled at by doctors because my triglycerides looked like the national debt. And um, they all said I was going to die by the time I was 40. And I couldn't stop. So I, you know, went the traditional route, went to Overeaters Anonymous, went to all the different psychologists you could imagine. Um, I did my own study of 40,000 people. I don't, I don't know how much you want to know at this point, but... Um, but I, none of that really worked until I found this really weird method and I kind of adapted it from another guy's work, made a whole bunch of changes and, um, and that's what I do now. So I, I kept the journal, I wrote the book and um, I didn't expect it to take off, but it did. Now there are thousands of people that are uh, doing the same thing I'm doing and I'm trying to help them. Yeah. Amazing. I think that's so cool. And obviously you're not alone and, and that's, 
a big part of the issue that we face these days. There's definitely a lot more I want to know about what you touched on there, but um, we'll come back to your research if that's okay. I just wanted to kind of, I guess, set the scene from your point of view as to what your thoughts are on the prevalence of this issue, whether it's overeating or binge eating or some people do it from a stress eating point of view. Yeah, you know, I'm really curious what your thoughts are also. But so I was not only a psychologist, I worked at home. I didn't have kids because my now ex-wife commuted. Uh, She traveled for business. And so I had a lot of time on my hands. So I started a second career as an industrial consultant. Um, an advertising consultant, really, for large companies. I, we wind up selling about $30 million of services to very big companies, including some of the biggest food companies on the planet. And what I saw from the kind of insider's perspective I, I was, was that I was really on the wrong side of things because what, what they're doing is they're, they're concentrating sources of starch and sugar and salt and oils and excitotoxins and chemicals um, and presenting us with this artificial, artificially enhanced source of pleasure. There's like a supersized source of pleasure that wasn't available on the savannah. There were no chips and chocolate bars and pizza on the savannah. There was, you know, there were no bags and boxes and containers in the in the tropics. Um, and there's a lot of research that shows that when you short circuit the mammalian pleasure center. Um, all the way back to the 1950s and 60s in the rat studies where they inserted electrodes into the pleasure center of the, of the rat's brain and they allowed them to push buttons to self-stimulate. And what they found was that they would ignore their survival needs to push these buttons thousands of times a day. You know, mother rats would abandon their pups to push the lever thousands of times a day. Starving rats would not pay attention to their food just to push the lever. Um, Rats would crawl over painful electrical grids just to push the lever thousands of times a day. And the studies were replicated in higher mammals and then eventually in humans in some ways with very similar results. And I think what that shows us is that the result of artificially stimulating the pleasure centers in ways that evolution didn't prepare us for is severe self-neglect. We neglect our survival needs in order to look for love at the bottom of these bags and boxes and containers. Um, I think that's a big part of the reason that we've got the problem. I think the advertising industry is another one. I think that um, people think advertising doesn't impact them, but do you think they would really be spending billions of dollars in advertising if that were true? Mm-hmm. Turns out, when you think advertising it doesn't impact you, it impacts you more because your sales resistance goes down. So that, that's exactly where the industry wants you to be. Um, then there's the addiction treatment industry that says you're powerless over this. You can't hope to quit. The best you could do is abstain one day at a time. Think of guidelines and not rules. And there, there's all of this kind of squishy, really patently false information out there. Um, and it's a perfect storm. It's a perfect storm. So there are defenses against it, fairly simple defenses against it. But most people don't like to think about it. It's a little frightening, everything that's happening. And so they're um, going along and getting more and more addicted. And um, that's why our culture is so, you know, overweight and um, 650 million obese people on the planet and the diabetes rate is up by 80% and you know, 31% of global deaths are caused by cardiovascular disease or some diet reversible problem um, because people feel like they can't stick with their best laid plans. 
You know, they, they kind of, they know it's killing them. Everybody knows it's killing them, but they make jokes about it and they laugh about it as they slowly eat themselves to death because they feel like they can't. And that's because our survival drives have been hijacked in my not so humble opinion. Um, so that's oh, I think yeah. it's a fascinating place to start because yeah, obviously we didn't have these foods available um, even really a couple of decades ago in, in, in context to where we are now. And I think, yeah, they, they created, these foods are created in a lab to be that perfect combination of sugar and salt. And obviously then with the marketing, and I think you'll agree social media is a big part of things in more yeah. recent years as to yeah. what's perpetuating these addictions. We're conditioned to instant gratification. You, mm. you know, I was friendly with one of the vice presidents of marketing for a very large food bar manufacturer. And a pivotal insight for me, he doesn't work there anymore, so I can say this, but um, a pivotal insight for me was when he told me that they became profitable when they took the vitamins out of the bar and they put the money into the packaging instead. So, and that's perfectly legal. There's, there was no law that prevented that. So making things appear healthy, like vibrant and colorful, and, and as a nutritionist, you probably know that all those colors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's supposed to signal the availability of a diversity of nutrients. Um, but in the packaging, it doesn't. It just signals vibrant colors. So that, that's what's going on in all sorts of different ways in industry. And um, it's, it's hijacking our survival drive. And it's very, very confusing to people. Yeah. They, they, they literally feel they can't live without it. So if, if, if you're sitting there and you're listening to this and you feel like, you know, just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. Um, it's a joke, but, but yeah. it's, it's, it's not really a joke. They, they've actually, you know, that drug, the chocolate drug, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with people who really want to eat chocolate once in a while, but if you feel like it's got a grip on you, like you're fighting a war with the chocolate bar and the chocolate bar is winning, there's a reason for that. They're, they're hijacking your survival drive. So you're supposed to have kind of these two parts of you, the part of you that, you know, is human and has all these goals and aspirations and loved ones and soulfulness and creativity and art and, you know, long-term plans. And then there's this very primitive lizard part of you that says, you know, give me the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. Mm -hmm. and, and industry is profiting from that. So, yeah, that's what's going on these days. And I, I, was, yeah. I was on the wrong side of it for a long time. Yeah, so tell me a little bit more about what you learned along the way. I know you obviously got delusioned with the traditional psychology and, you know, I've been there too. And so we can explore that together, but I guess, what did you try and, and what, um, what was your experience about it? Obviously not working. Yeah. So I will tell you that food is a very soulful conversation and you can learn a lot about yourself psychologically by looking at the foods that you have trouble with. Um, I can also tell you that that insight won't necessarily help you to stop overeating. It'll help you in a lot of other ways, but it won't necessarily help you to stop overeating. So I'll give you an example. And this kind of goes back to the research study that I did. Mm -hmm. I, I put up a survey back in the days when internet traffic was cheap, like 2001, 2002. I got 40,000 people to take it. Um, so I, over a couple of years, and it was a survey about... Um, different areas of life satisfaction, different personality variables. And I asked people what foods do they have trouble controlling? And I looked for relationships. And in a database that size, you can find really interesting relationships. Um, I found three of significance that were worth talking about. 
One was that people who struggled with chocolate, like me, were generally feeling more lonely or heartbroken. Um, lonely, heartbroken, maybe a little depressed. Um, and that made sense for me. I'll tell you the other two findings in a second, but that makes sense for me given what I was going through at the time. Um, people who struggled with salty, crunchy things like chips and pretzels and things like that, they tended to be stressed at work. And people who struggled with soft, chewy things tended to be stressed at home. Like lollies or... Say again? Soft, chewy things like confectionery or... No, 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 like um, breads and pastas and right. like soft, mm -hmm. chewy starches is what I meant to say. Starches, mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And so I started investigating that more in myself and in my clients. And since my mother was a psychotherapist and since she raised me, I said, Mom, why do I have this chocolate thing? I, I see this relationship between heartbreak and loneliness. And, and she got this look on her face like she was really embarrassed. I said, Mom, what, what are you going to tell me? And she said, well, you know, when you were a boy, when you were one and a half, two years old, um, my dad was missing. My dad, your grandfather, was missing. And I was very depressed. And your father was a captain in the army. He was also a psychologist. And they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. I'm revealing my age. Um, and I was worried all the time, and I was depressed. And a lot of times when you came running to me and crying or wanting food or something or wanting a hug, I just didn't have it. I didn't know what it meant to be a mother. I just didn't have it. And I figured out that you like chocolate Bosco syrup. Um, it's an old brand. And she got a bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup, and she put it in a refrigerator on the floor and she'd say, go get your Bosco. I can run into her like needing a hug or needing some comfort or some you know, food. She'd say, go get your Bosco. And I go running to get the Bosco and I suck on it and go into a sugar coma. Um, and I thought, wow, that is why I've got this chocolate thing. That makes perfect sense, right? Um, the, the result of that was that I feel more compassionate towards my mom. Um, she just passed away, but we, we had a better relationship after having that talk because I could kind of forgive her for some of the things she went through when she talked to me more about what it was like to have her dad missing. And I could forgive myself because I knew there was a reason for why that match was struck, why that fire was burning. But it didn't fix the problem because I found there was this little voice inside of me that said, you know what, Glenn, you're right. Your mama didn't love you enough. And until you can fill that lonely heart inside of you, you're just going to have to Go out and binge, 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 binge. So go get us some chocolate. And what I discovered later on, I, I came across the work of a guy named Jack Trimpery. I'll tell you a little more, more about him in a second. But what I discovered was trying to love yourself thin, trying to be a detective to figure out what struck the match. It's interesting and soulful, but it doesn't put out the fire. Once the match is struck, the fire burns all by itself. And you need to be a fireman, not a detective, a firewoman. Most of my clients tend to be women, by the way. Fire, fire woman, not detective. You need very practical methods to put out the fire. And then you can go figure out what started it in the first place. And I think that's how arsonists work, how arson detectives work anyway. Um, I don't think they run in to figure out what caused it right away. I think they make sure the fire is out. And then they go and they look to, you know, because uh, you got to stop the damage. So, and the same thing happened with my clients. If I was talking to someone who was struggling with, you know, crunchy, salty things, they'd say, there was like this voice inside of him that said, you know what? The man's got his boot on my neck. And until I can get my own business going, get free of this and have a life of my own, then I'm just going to have to take solace in salty, crunchy things. Uh, let's, let's go get some yippee. And so I felt like I was having all these interesting conversations. I got a lot of press for it. I was in a lot of famous places for it. But I didn't, um, 
I, I didn't really make any progress in stopping the overeating, or very minimal. Um, and so when I came across this alternative addiction treatment work, and you can tell me to speed up if you want to, if we're getting too fast, but when I, when I came across that, what I learned was that essentially there's no love in the lizard brain. And so the, the problem with trying to love yourself thin or nurture your inner wounded child back to health, which is a good thing to do separately, is that it, in the lizard brain, the most primitive part of our brainstem, it looks at something in the environment and it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? Eat, mate, or kill. It's, it's not concerned for other members of the tribe. It's not, it's not concerned for the well-being of society or some type of long-term goal or pursuit. It's just eat, mate, or kill. It's the mammalian brain and the, um, the neocortex, the, the higher brain, that evolved millions of years later to be superior to the lizard brain. That's really important because there's this myth out there that we're powerless over these impulses, but that's not the way our neurology is set up. We're set up to be able to inhibit those impulses, um, no matter how strong they are. And, and, and it's, it's, it's up here that our real human identity lives. This is where all the things that we care about lives. Um, and so... I realized that all these years I was going about things the wrong way. I was trying to love myself then and connect more to this thing when really what I needed to do was to separate from it. And this is the embarrassing part for me because what I did was I said, okay, I'm going to call this thing my inner pig. Um, I know I'm a sophisticated psychologist and I'm actually kind of a nice guy, but, and I'm not talking about real pigs in the world. I'm talking about a mental construct, but this is my inner pig. Um, and I'm going to make lines in the sand. So, for example, I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. And that way, if I heard the pig saying, you know, Glenn, chocolate, it grows on a cocoa bean and cocoa beans come from a plant, so chocolate's really a vegetable. I know that that's pig squeal. The pig is squealing for its slop. I don't eat pig slop and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And that very crude, very primitive approach would wake me up at the moment of impulse. It, it, it was not miraculous right away, but there was a difference right away. And then it kind of became miraculous later on because I had to practice with a little bit, but it would wake me up and give me those extra microseconds that I needed to remember who I was, what kind of person I wanted to be around chocolate, what were my long-term plans, who did I care about, and make the right decisions. Um, and I, I kept a journal about that for a lot of years, working it out, and we published a journal and it got really popular. And that's, that's what happened. That's so cool. And I love that you say the microseconds because I think that's what's really important you know there's obviously ways of explaining it but I, I love your construct that mental construct because it does it gives you that time to actually make a decision that you're you know ultimately going to be proud of or happy of rather than the habitual nature which you've been spending a lot of time fine-tuning unfortunately exactly exactly yeah. yes yes yeah cool so do you teach everyone to have the same pig or is it like about finding your own version of that too? <laughs> um, well, first of all, you don't, you don't have to call it a pig. I, yeah. I know that women in particular, a lot of them were shamed as children or shamed when they were older about being overweight. And I, I'm very much against fat shaming. I think people need to be accepted at all, at all sizes. I don't necessarily believe people are healthy at all sizes, but I believe mm. they need to be accepted at all sizes. Um, and so you can call it, you know, your, inner slacker, or some people mm. call it their inner B-I-T-C-H. Um, just, just as long as it's not, you don't think of it like a cute, cuddly little pet. This is something, you, you want to cultivate a little bit of disdain mm. and superiority. It's like, you're the alpha wolf, and this is the challenger wolf. 
and you want to be able to look at it and say, step out of line and I'll kill you, right? That's, that's what the alpha wolf does. So this is not something you're going to nurture or cuddle or, you know, that, that inner wounded child is still in you, but it lives higher up in the brain. So, yeah, so, so everybody has to kind of come up with their own name for it. Right. And some people really like calling the pig. Some people, if you look at my reviews, about 10% of the people absolutely despise me. And it's mostly because I use the word pig. Um, it's par for the course. The other thing is that I think it's really critical that people come up with their own food plan, their own set of food rules. I think that part of the pig strategy, our destructive thinking strategy is to say, well, we're going to try this guy's diet for a while, and then we're going to try that guy's diet for a while. And I call it the grass is greener philosophy. Um, and, and people will jump from one diet to the next and binge in between. Mm-hmm. And I tell them that, look, the grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is greener where it's watered. Take responsibility. Nobody's going to follow you around all day to figure out what you're eating and keep you under control. This is something you're going to have to do. So you take responsibility. You come up with your own set of food rules. Um, I give them a bunch of categories. Like there are things you'll never do again. There are things you'll always do. There are things that you can do conditionally and there are things you do in an unrestricted way. Um, And it's up to you, right? I will only ever eat pretzels at a major league baseball game again. Okay, you can do that. Personally, I never eat chocolate. I haven't had it in years. Um, I just, I tried six ways to Sunday to find a way to control it and it just didn't work. So I just, I said, I'm never going to eat chocolate again and I just didn't. Um, And the craving went away after six months or so. So, you know, sometimes never is easier than some. So I I like people to know that. Um, I tend to find if people are struggling and nothing's working for them, if they go for a month without sugar, flour, or alcohol, that they have much much more progress and then they, they want to reintegrate some of that they can. A lot of people don't want to when it's over. They don't believe me when they're starting, but when it's over, they don't want to. Um, but I, I work with people with all, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a whole foods plant-based person myself, but I work with people that are on paleo and I work with people that, you know, do some of the point counting systems. It's as long as this is about autonomy and independence and reclaiming your sense of power. So I'm not here to tell you what to eat. I'm here to help you reclaim your sense of power over your own mind and your own decisions. Yeah, cool. So then just putting a bit of a timeline in place so that perhaps someone that's listening that has the, the urges to binge or is in a bit of a rut with that emotional eating, do you think the first step then is, is to identify where it started or, or why it's happening and then to develop the... No? No, no. Hmm. The, the, um, the first step is to figure out your single worst um, food behavior or food trigger. Yep. Right? Got it. Mm-hmm. Um, and to make one rule that will help you to control that. It's, mm-hmm. Let's put out the fire and then we can dig for what happened. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you were a city traffic controller, so city traffic planner, you would address the most dangerous intersection first and get a traffic light up there. That, that's what you want to do. You want to make it safer to drive. Yeah. And then you can figure out why later on. Yeah. yeah, and that's the analogy about the, the fire before, obviously. So that's the first negative food behavior. So you identify that, and then where to? Well, so I usually ask people to live with that for a few weeks to a few months mm-hmm. um, without necessarily worrying about weight loss. They usually do lose a little weight because of that, but mm. I don't want that to be the first goal because what I'm trying to do is restore – see, it, our culture promotes a sense of dependence and accountability and – cultivating fear over your own impulses and your own body and all of these foods. And I want them to, to be able to reclaim their sense of power and feel 
hope and enthusiasm and mastery of their own impulses. So I, I want them to understand how this game is played before they put any more stress on their body by lowering, creating too much of a caloric deficit and, you know, experiencing more of the, more of the hunger that they're not really used to. A lot, a lot of people, a lot of binge eaters, you probably know this, um, and anorexic and bulimics, but a, a lot of people who binge, it was triggered by a strong period of dieting or fasting. So most bingers are also really good at restricting for periods of time. And I believe there's an evolutionary mechanism that says, look, if food is so scarce for such a period, when it's available, we better hoard it, right? And that's why people find themselves sitting by the refrigerator and not being able to stop, even beyond the point of pleasure, even beyond the point of pain. Um, so I, I really try to have a very reasonable, practical plan. One, one rule um, get used to it, start to feel powerful, get excited. And then once you are excited and you feel like you can do this, let's add another, let's add another, let's add another. People's self-esteem tends to go up when they do this also. I get some criticism that says, well, you're calling yourself a pig, but it's not part of your human identity. What you're doing is reclaiming your ability to master your impulses. What you're really doing is building character. When I say I will never have chocolate on a weekday again, what I'm really saying is I'm becoming the type of person who doesn't eat chocolate during the week. And that becomes a new habitual behavior, which is something people can be proud of and enhances their self-esteem. Yeah. I think and then, I, then after that, you add things for weight loss. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, cool. No, I love that because I think you're right. Like you've obviously got a step change, it, which is really important. But um, the, the practicing is obviously that, that analogy of the, the willpower muscle, so to speak, that you've obviously got to strengthen that for it to become almost, you know, I guess part of your DNA moving forward. So it's, you know, no longer a conscious decision. Yeah. Yeah, really yeah. cool. And, and ca character trumps willpower. Um, a good example of that. Mm. See, willpower is a fatigable muscle. Mm. People tend to think of it as a black and white thing, either I have it or I don't. But it's more like gas in the tank. What fatigues willpower is having to make decisions all day long. And all the research suggests there are only so many de decisions we can make, only so many good decisions we can make. This is why a rule is better than a guideline. If you say, I will only have chocolate 90% of the time, every time you're in front of a chocolate bar, you've got a decision to make because is this part of the 10% or is this part of the 90%? But if you've got a rule that says, I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again, you don't have to make those decisions and you're not, you're not taxing your willpower. Um, character trumps willpower because throughout our lives, it's necessary for us to decide the type of people we want to be without even knowing it. You walk into a diner and there's a $20 bill on the table and the waitress hasn't seen it yet and she says, hey, I'm just going to go get you a menu. There's nobody up at the front. There's no window. Nobody would see you take it if you wanted to. I ask most people what they do in that situation and 99% say, I would never take that. And I'll say, why? They say, well, I'm not a thief. And I said, so as a matter of character, even though you wouldn't get in trouble and there's something that was pleasurable you could do, you've decided you're not the kind of person who would act in this way in this situation. And they say, yes. And I say, well, why can't you do that with food? Why, why can't you make the same type of character decision with food? That trumps willpower. It doesn't take willpower not to take the $20 bill. You're just, you're not a thief and you're not a thief, so you don't take it. So. Yeah, I totally happen. agree. I speak about this with my clients as being that integrity gap. Like, um, to explain further, you know, if they wouldn't sit in front of me and binge on chocolate or chips, then 
they don't want to be that person behind closed doors. Yet if there is a big integrity gap between who they present to me or to someone else and the person they are at home, then often those people have like a lot more either conflict or, um, you know, internal turmoil um, or a lot more challenges in their life. So it is about thinking about the person they want to be in the world when they're at home in that environment where they're tempted. Absolutely, yes. And be be the same person in the world as you are when you're at home. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. So what about um, from the binge eating point of view when someone's maybe started the journey but they've either had a bit of a regression or an, an episode? Have you got some thoughts around? A lot. Do? Yeah. A lot, yeah. Mm. Um, okay. So the first thing to understand, and I didn't know that, this is a really pivotal insight for me, is that that self-castigating voice that you hear after you make a mistake or have a regression for a while that it's binge motivated, that your pig's desire to beat you down and make you feel like you're too weak to resist a binge is just an effort to get you to binge more. And when you understand that and you start to separate from that, then you can decide to put on a lens of success versus a lens of failure. There are two ways we can collect evidence about the world. We can look at the mistakes and say, well, what can we learn from them? What did we do better? You know, did one cupcake lead to five cupcakes instead of 15, right? Um, Did you binge on something that was less fatty or less sugary or something like that, even though you broke your rules? Um, It's important to avoid black and white thinking after you've made a mistake. Before you've made a mistake, you need to clearly define the bullseye and exactly what would constitute hitting it and not hitting it. But if you make a mistake, you need to be very kind to yourself and take a look at what happened, forgive yourself and and move on. cultivate the lens of success, you'll be cultivating a success identity. So no matter how many times you fail, if you keep getting up, eventually you get better. If, if an archer aims at a bullseye and they miss the bullseye, they don't say, oh my God, I'm no good at this. I, I might as well just shoot the rest of the arrows into the audience, right? Or if, if you chip a tooth, you're not supposed to go get a hammer and bang the rest of them out. You're supposed to say, how did I chip the tooth? If you touch a hot stove, you're not supposed to put your whole hand on the hot stove and say, oh my God, what's wrong with me? I'm a compulsive hot stove toucher. I'm just pathetic. You pay attention. You feel a little bit of pain, a little bit of shame, and then you let that go. Um, and if you, if you can't let it go, you need to understand that that's your pig telling you that you're too weak to resist binging more. If it just wants to binge, that's all. So yeah, that, that's the insight. That's the insight is that the um, self-castigation. Carol Munter told me that it's very difficult to continue binging if you refuse to yell at yourself. Very difficult to continue binging if you refuse to yell at yourself. It's the same insight. If, if you don't empower that self-critical voice, then you start to cultivate a lens of success and things get better. Keep getting up and aiming at the target. Our neurological system is set up to learn. You have to get better. We keep on aiming. Yeah, I love that. A lens of success. I think that's a really awesome way to look at it because, again, you can't change that you've done it right. You can't undo the past, um, but where are the lessons so that you can change it next time? Right. Yeah, so good. What about, you've mentioned um, a couple of times thinking like a skinny person. Can you Mm -hmm. talk to me more about that? And then obviously like what you might see with um, body dysmorphia and people that have been overweight for some time and how they view themselves. Yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to make people skinny, by the way. I call it a permanently thin 
person. Um, I, I think that we have a, in some ways, we have a overly thin body amp, body ideal, not, not body image, but body ideal in our culture. I, um, I agree. I think, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Mm. So I think, I think it's a problem also. Mm. Um, what was the second part of the question? Just so I can plan in my oh, head. Oh, I think it was more around the, the, the question is um, how to think about yourself differently when you've like been say overweight for a long time and maybe you view, you view yourself still as that person. Oh, well, first of all, start to say I'm becoming a thin person. Mm. Like if, if it's not believable for you to say that I'm a thin person, then say I'm becoming a thin person. And, you know, one of the things I try to help people do when they come up with a food plan is project themselves into the future one year, five years, 10 years, and see what's life going to be like. I know my pig says I can't do this, but what if I did? What would life be like if I comply with this 100%? And it's pretty amazing all the things that they come up with. And they, they say, so I'm, I'm giving up feeling energetic and healthy with my kids. I'm giving up my relationship with my husband. I'm giving up going out socially and, and wearing clothes that I like to wear and clearing up my skin and you know, being able to hike and um, play with the dogs. I'm giving up life for cookies. You know? like, and, and then the cookies start to seem a lot less interesting. Because the pig will tell you, you can't, you can't abstain from this because you're just going to be giving up too much. But what are you giving up if you don't? So part, part of it, part of defining yourself as a thin person is becoming more long-term oriented and being able to actually see the future that you're striving towards. So I don't want people to just be running away from this hungry bear. I want there to be something that's really pulling them forward um, into the person that they're, they're trying to become. Yeah. The, the other part of this to understand the psychology of winners. And when a winner takes aim at a goal, they're purging all of the doubt and distraction from their mind. And so if you look at an Olympic archer again, aiming at the bullseye, then you don't see them. You see them almost becoming the arrow and feeling the arrow going into the target as they're aiming. And they don't let go until they have that feeling. So they're purging the distraction about the wind and the audience and you know, what happened last time and what's gonna happen next time. And they're very much in the present moment visualizing the result. It's almost like they're compartmentalizing or separating out that part of their brain that would say, you know, you know nobody's perfect, just aim for, for progress, not perfection. At the moment that they're aiming, they're aiming with perfection. They're, they're, attempt, they're committed to perfection. If they make a mistake, and most of the time they don't hit the dead center bullseye, right? Most of the time it's at least a little bit off. Then they switch and they analyze and reconsider and figure out what they're going to adjust for the next time that they're aiming. And so if you can understand that dual mindset um, and you understand that the pig will want to mix those two up, it wants you to aim imperfectly and then criticize yourself as if you're supposed to be perfect. But it's actually the opposite. You're supposed to aim perfectly, but be forgiving to yourself after you make a mistake. And that, that will help you to change your identity and um, be softer with yourself and start to think about becoming a, a permanently thin person. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, that's a really good way to look at things. And also I think it's about, you know, I guess you have to enjoy that process if you want the end result. I feel like some people you know, I think projecting is a great idea. Absolutely. To think about, like, I, I always remind myself, like, 
um, in three months you will thank yourself like for these decisions. Uh Um, but also like you have to be okay with the changes that you're making and, and, and fall in love with that process. Yes. Yeah. So you can be in the moment the whole time and and enjoy the journey. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Because otherwise you just end up being resistant that you can't eat the cookies or whatever it is that you're trying to avoid. You know, um, one of my coaches, Kay Collins says that when a big ship is trying to turn around in a shipping lane, they can't stop on a dime and go the other way. Mm. They just can't. As a matter of fact, they can cut the engine and they can turn the wheel but then they keep going the wrong way and they slowly turn around and start going the right way. And you need to understand that that's part of the process um, for, for a lot of people. For a lot of people, you're, you're certainly not going to instantly lose 100 pounds or you know, be rid of your diabetes in two weeks or something like that. Um, you can make a difference with diabetes in a few weeks when you yeah, change your... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but but you, know, you, you need to accept it took a long time to get here and it's going to take a long time to get back where you need to go and fall in love with the process. I... I totally endorse that. Yeah. Fascinating. I could talk to you forever about this topic, but I'm sure you've given our listeners lots of tips, but is there anything else like a specific area that you wanted to dive into a little bit more or what are you, what are your thoughts on um, any other strategies? Well, this is my big strategy. Mm. This is my big strategy. I, it seems like a very mechanical way of going about things, but it's, it's a discipline in the same way that, yoga is a discipline or any, any, any kind of sport or work is a discipline. Um, there's a lot of mastery involved to it and there's a whole mm. inner, inner game which changes the kind of person you are. You, you need to be willing to, in, to embrace that change. Um, you know, one of my favorite quotes is by Jim Rohn who said that a life of discipline is better than a life... A life of discipline is better than a life of regret. Yeah. Um, and there's another guy named Peter McWilliams from the 80s who said, you can have anything you want but you can't have everything you want. And so I think if you can embrace a new discipline and focus on, this is going to take some time and energy. It's going to take some work in the beginning to articulate the rules, to start to listen for what the inner food enemy is going to be telling you about why you should break those rules, to learn to ignore them, to learn to dispute them. It's going to take a little time and energy to do that work. But once that's done, it's like, most people put in time and energy to learn how to drive and then they don't have to think about it. Yeah. It, it's, it's, that's what it's like. Yeah. I, I agree with you. It's like we've forgotten that our brain takes the same amount of work though. Like, yeah. So we, we do our yoga and we commit or we learn a language and we commit and so on. But like a lot of us um, don't apply that same thought process to how we train the mind. So I'm glad you said that because it is, it is something that needs to be trained. Um, and you know, you can get really good at it. Yeah, and can make a dramatic difference. Your pig will tell you you're going to suffer with cravings forever, but it's not true. Um, you know, the principles of neuroplasticity say that what fires together wires together, but what doesn't fire together extinguishes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so your, your taste buds will upregulate. They have downregulated in response to all of the industrial foods. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you eat a lot of sugar and chocolate, an apple is not going to taste as good. Mm. But if, if you back off and you have a lot less of that, your taste buds will upregulate and you'll start to experience all the compounds in the apple much more thoroughly. Yeah, um, so you're, you're still going to enjoy food. You're not going to have to pay the same consequences. Um, th- there's a lot to live for. There's really a yeah. lot to live for. Yeah. That's awesome. So, so good. Tell us about your book, Never Binge Again. 
Well, you can get a copy for free um, for Kindle, Nook, or a PDF if you go to neverbingeagain.com and click on the big red free bonus section. And what we also give you there is um, a set of recorded coaching sessions for free. Uh, the reason I do that is that this can sound a little bit harsh or um, weird in the abstract, but if you listen to people actually getting coached through it, it's, it's a very compassionate method of working with your cravings, and it really does restore people's enthusiasm in one session. It really does. Um, so I want people to hear that. And what we also did was we put together a whole bunch of food plan templates. So if coming up with the rules, the initial rules, um, to you know, match a paleo diet or a vegetarian diet or a macrobiotic diet, whatever you're on, if that's difficult for you, we, we get you started. We call them starter templates because I don't want to take responsibility for telling you what to eat. I want you to be able to adapt them for yourself. But um, they're there to get you started. So Awesome. Yeah, Very kind of you. Mm -hmm. Some amazing resources. Thank you. And do you have your own podcast? I do. NeverBingeAgainPodcast.com. And I would love to interview you for it. Oh, I would love to be on your show. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Glenn, it was so great to hear from you today. And I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot. Um, obviously, more resources and a free copy of Never Binge Again in the show notes. So head there now, team. Thanks again for your time. It was great to connect with you. Thank you so much. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.